Cities do have a lot of potential and I'd say responsibility. Urbanization is still rising and studies show that city population is expected to increase by two thirds by 2030, meaning city emissions will continue to increase unless they take serious action. The high and rising concentration of population in cities means that they are de facto large contributors of emissions, both through producing goods and services, as well as by consuming them. Welcome. You're listening to Amplifier, raising voices against rising temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we investigate the climate crisis through a variety of different lenses and topics. Hi, everybody. Today's roundtable includes myself, Jordan Hasty, and my two friends and colleagues, Jasmine Williams and Mackenzie White. Today's topic is hidden emissions. We're taking a close look at global greenhouse gas emissions accounting systems and inquiring into how to ethically distribute the responsibility for reducing these emissions. We ask, what do current emissions accounting frameworks include? Where are their limitations? And what can we do about it? Let's start off by talking about the importance of greenhouse gas emissions and counting systems. Jasmine, to start it off, why are these frameworks significant? Does it really matter what accounting systems, cities, governments, and even nations use? Yeah, absolutely. So greenhouse gas accounting systems are frameworks used to measure emission quantities and sources. Measuring greenhouse gases through accounting frameworks is important to ensure transparency, accountability, targeted reduction policies, and global justice in response to climate change. The type of system used has important impacts on where greenhouse gas accountability is directed because each method identifies a different source for emissions. Okay, so it seems like the accounting framework used decides which actors are held responsible for the greenhouse gases that are emitted. That seems like a pretty big deal. Precisely. That's a foundational concern here. Accounting frameworks are also key for climate change response. We need accurate and precise systems that account for all emission sources to fully and robustly address climate change. Climate change is arguably the most pressing issue of our time. So focusing on what systems we use to measure and respond to the greenhouse gases causing the warming of the planet needs urgent focus if we hope to effectively confront it. Exactly. And this is what the science is telling us. As of now, we've surpassed 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, meaning that carbon emissions today are higher than at any point in the past 800,000 years. This increase of gases in the atmosphere is triggering what is commonly referred to as the greenhouse effect, which means that as concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are increasing, incoming heat is being trapped within the atmosphere and the Earth's temperature is gradually rising. 
You know, a video I saw the other day demonstrating temperature rise since the Industrial Revolution really put this in perspective through a, a simple but striking statistic. 14 of the 15 warmest years on record occurred in the first 15 years of the century. That video will be in the show notes. Y'all should definitely check it out. That's a staggering statistic that really shows the stakes here and the importance of immediate action. Countless studies have documented the danger of failing to reach zero emissions by 2050. This will entail enormous disasters for both the planet and humanity. Specifically, a two degrees Celsius rise in global temperatures will result in massive and unpredictable risks that, in many cases, will be irreversible. Yeah, and to add to that, it's important to recognize that a temperature increase of that size would undermine the rights of millions and push the planet past many of the catastrophic tipping points of extinction. In this scenario, disaster that once seemed so safely distant will become a new normal. Only by limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius can we avoid these catastrophic irreversible impacts. And even still, in this scenario, we would still see more intense and frequent hurricanes, wildfires, and so forth as a new climate normal. Well, thankfully, the UN climate response focuses on this, but is it really enough? The 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold is suggested by the Paris Agreement, which is an agreement within the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, addressing greenhouse gas emission mitigation, adaptation, and finance. However, the 1.5 degree limitation is merely a suggestion, and it only mandates limiting the temperature rise to 2 degrees Celsius. Also, the Paris Agreement utilizes a production-based framework, meaning some emissions are excluded from its calculations. We'll talk about that a little more later. Yeah, and the UN has no international enforcement power because of countries' national sovereignty rights. So there's a massive responsibility that needs to be assumed. Because of this, accounting systems offer a great medium to identify and allocate responsibility. Exactly, and this is where I think cities come in and have the potential to take a leading role. It's a complex dynamic with cities because they're both a leading cause of and a possible solution to climate change. Cities are population hubs. As of 2019, over half of the world's population lived in urban areas, and cities account for approximately 70% of greenhouse gas emissions, according to a study done by scholar Andrew Sudmont and others in 2018. Cities do have a lot of potential, and I'd say responsibility. Urbanization is still rising, and studies show that city population is expected to increase by two-thirds by 2030, meaning city emissions will continue to increase unless they take serious action. The high and rising concentration of population in cities means that they are de facto large contributors of emissions, both through producing goods and services, as well as by consuming them. Cities are definitely mega contributors to emissions, but their potential to mitigate emissions is there and really needs to be enacted. Despite cities' large carbon footprint, there are hubs of innovation that can potentially develop creative solutions and responses to address climate change issues. And on a policy level, they're an especially flexible tool to reduce greenhouse gas emissions because local governing bodies are better able to tailor policy to their unique greenhouse gas inventories. Also, what's really nice is that cities can bypass a lot of the red tape involved in national and international policy, generally being able to develop and implement policy much quicker than larger governing bodies. Putting this all together, you can see how cities have notable capacity to mitigate climate change. But to employ this potential cities have, there needs to be precise and holistic emissions accounting frameworks. Absolutely, but accounting for emissions is much more complicated than you might think. 
Comprehensive records of greenhouse gas emission sources require robust sets of standards. These standards are formally developed into frameworks that everyone can clearly follow so that we are all on the same page. The most popular standards fall into two general categories, those that account for emissions at the location they are produced and those that count them where they are consumed. It might be helpful to run through a quick example. Okay, yeah. So let's say you go to your hometown furniture store and buy a wooden table. Where did this table come from? Who made the parts? How did it end up in that store? And how did it make it home to your house? Well, the table was assembled in Mexico with screws made in China and from timber cut in Canada. But don't forget, the tools to cut the timber were manufactured in the UK. But that's not it. The tools were made with steel ore extracted from Australia. Wow. Okay. And that's the global supply chain. I mean, how do we even start counting all of these emissions? Well, remember, there are two categories for accounting for emissions. One is production-based emissions, and the other is consumption-based emissions. For production-based emissions, it's pretty easy. Every country that contributes a piece of the table takes responsibility for their respective emissions. So Canada counts the emissions for deforestation, Australia for mining, and Mexico for the energy it takes to put the pieces together. And each country counts the travel it takes to move the pieces from one place to another. Consumption-based accounting, however, is a little trickier. If you buy the table and don't plan to resell it, you're considered the final consumer. Under a consumption-based framework, you're responsible for all of the emissions necessary for the production of that table. To account for that, we have to add up the emissions from every part of the supply chain. Okay, that sounds like a lot of work. It is, but Jordan knows all about how we can parse it out and get an accurate and inclusive account of emission sources. Jordan, what are the positives and negatives of production-based and consumption-based emissions? Isn't this complicated supply chain one of the main critiques of implementing a consumption-based accounting system? Yeah, that's right. Complexity is actually one of the biggest challenges in turning the consumption-based or CB accounting framework into policy and practice. CB emissions are usually incredibly complex to account for since they span through international supply chains of goods and services. Because of this, the consumption-based methodology is also challenging for city governments to incorporate in regulations. And this difficulty combined with the potential for inaccurate measures is the basis for a lot of criticism of consumption-focused accounting. But despite these noteworthy challenges, there are numerous benefits that come with the CB framework. These include raising awareness of consumer demand on fossil fuels, informing effective policy, and ensuring consumer accountability. Put simply, the CB framework brings attention to an incredibly significant but often overlooked source of emissions that tend to be left out of the more commonly used methods of production-based or PB accounting. Also, tracking consumption emissions is particularly valuable when we're looking at cities. As we noted before, urban areas produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, especially through their demand for goods. While they're home to only half the world's populations, cities are responsible for about 70% of energy use and about 70% of carbon dioxide emissions. So there seems to be some benefits to looking at the consumer's role in climate change, but dominant accounting systems don't include this, right? Unfortunately, no, they usually don't. 
In our current system, production-based accounting protocols remain the dominant form of greenhouse gas emission inventories among cities, regions, nation states, and in international treaties. Because production-based assessments don't consider the ultimate destinations and final consumers for goods and services, they fail to depict a comprehensive picture of urban greenhouse gas emissions, which is an essential component of impact assessment, particularly in areas that house a large amount of consumer demand, such as cities. All right, so to sum it up, when we look at production emissions, we're really only seeing a snapshot of the final destination of goods. It provides little insight into the driving forces of demand. Yeah, and another concern to recognize is that using a production-based approach to assess emissions of cities and countries can sometimes result in something called emission displacement. This is when greenhouse gas emissions are essentially outsourced to other countries rather than truly addressed at their source. Emission displacement has a huge negative implication for effective emission mitigation. If countries can technically meet their emission targets by outsourcing carbon-intensive production through production-based framework, we won't really be reducing global greenhouse gas emissions, we'll be shifting the emission location and who receives the blame. This may seriously undermine the efficiency of global climate policy as well as place undue burden upon countries bearing these outsourced emissions. It's also worth noting that emissions displacement can work in the opposite direction, too. So rather than curbing emissions by holding consumers accountable, a CB framework can remove incentive from producers to mitigate their impacts. We can see this when we look at countries like Norway. Under the traditional production-based accounting protocols, Norway has to bear the responsibility for all the greenhouse gas emissions related to their extraction of oil and natural gas. And as a high-income, wealthy country, Norway is quite capable of reducing these emissions. However, if we accounted for these emissions using a CB approach, the countries that consume Norway's exports would be responsible for those emissions and Norway would not hold any incentive to make its its extraction process more efficient or sustainable. That's true. And so using the production-based framework does have its advantages. Production-based emissions are much easier to account for, allowing them to be reduced at their source. Because of their clear territorial boundaries, Production-based greenhouse gas inventories can also be easily added together. Also, PB accounting helps ensure producer accountability, which is essential for effectively regulating the carbon intensity of producing goods and services. All right, so we've seen that production-based and consumption-based accounting both have their limitations, and we've seen that CB is much harder to implement than PB. That's why no national governments and very few cities have yet to do so. So I think we need to ask, is implementing consumption-based accounting worth it? Well, I know one good place to start. A paper by Otterstrom and Jorthen titled Consumption-Based Emissions Accounting, the Normative Debate can help us think through this question. The authors propose that the decision of whether or not to adopt CB accounting boils down to two factors. Will CB accounting more effectively reduce emissions than PB accounting? And will CB accounting ensure a more just distribution of responsibility? Their conclusion boils down to, it's complicated. To begin, proponents of consumption-based accounting point out that consumption of goods and services reach its peak in high-income urban areas. So if we place the burden of emissions on the consumer, then those who have the most resources will be held responsible for mitigating the emissions of their consumption. It just so happens that currently, high-income areas generally have the most stringent climate mitigation commitments. 
So then what could these high-income cities do to reduce their carbon footprint? Well, they could do a few things. They could enable a transfer of green technology to producer cities to combat emissions at their source, or they could regulate the consumption patterns of their citizens to incentivize low-carbon supply chains and reduce consumption. Both methods could have a snowball effect. As high-income cities invest in low-carbon supply chains, the cost of low-carbon production falls for everyone. This has the potential to massively reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. That sounds great, but still, very few cities measure consumption-based emissions. So what's the holdup? Well, it goes back to the complexity of implementation. CB accounting takes a ton of data. Not only does a city need to be able to measure the emissions produced in their territory, but they also have to have tons of data on imports and exports. Also, they have to have estimates of how much carbon is created along their supply chain of the goods they consume. That and the complexity of modern supply chains create two problems for effective mitigation. CB estimates could be uncertain and they could take a long time to fully implement. That's a critical concern because when it comes to climate change, we don't have a lot of time. If implementing CB accounting takes too long to begin reducing emissions, we could lock in irreversible damage to our planet. And that's an issue of transgenerational justice. It's great that you bring that up because climate justice is of huge concern. Mitigating climate change doesn't come without its own issues of justice in the present. And that's the second reason Otterstrom and Jorthen consider adopting CB. Right now, the Paris Agreement sets PB as the international standard by requiring all countries to count their PB emissions. But most high-income cities import their goods from lower-income developing cities, displacing those emissions onto lower-income areas. These cities then must report all of the emissions caused in production, even if they never enjoy the goods they produce. These lower-income cities and countries then face the economic and political pressures to decarbonize the supply chain. So it seems that consumption-based approach offers a way to more justly distribute the responsibility for emissions in many cases, since it pushes responsibility towards high-income consumers and overall wealthier countries. All right, so to recap, we understand that there are some clear benefits to implementing a CB framework, but let's circle back to the question we asked earlier. Is it really worth it? Again, it depends on the city. But luckily, cities don't have to choose one or the other. For cities with high incomes, they can easily develop and implement a CV accounting inventory alongside their PB inventory. Doing so enables the cities with the most resources to recognize their ability to mitigate the emissions they directly produce and the emissions that are embodied in their supply chains. By highlighting the connection that high-income cities have to low-income cities through their supply chain, it can also enable global cooperation in reducing and greening consumption. However, this global cooperation cannot wait until CB frameworks are operational. The critics are right. Waiting too long to act will lock in disastrous climate change. Consumption-based accounting should be advocated for as a complement to production-based accounting and alongside other urgent actions to mitigate climate change. Consumption-based accounting is not the only solution, but one of many tools we can utilize to create a just and fair transition to a low-carbon future. This week's episode was originally written and produced by Jordan Hasty, Jasmine Williams, and Mackenzie White. 
It was edited and reproduced by Caitlin Boisvert. The music was provided by Zola Berger-Schmitz and the graphics by Tyler Stern. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about us on our website and YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. We are currently working on developing Season 3, so stay tuned for later this year. <laughs>